The scripture reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 11 and reading through verse 27. And they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and, ret- and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minors and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a few, in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servants, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to, and he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I say to you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and I will slaughter them before me. When we study the parables, often we come across phrases and words that we're not that familiar with in our own culture. Obviously, from the context of whatever the statement being made is, we can determine what those phrases mean and what those, uh, those words mean most of the time. This morning, I want to talk about the word occupy. The King James Version uses that word occupy. Uh, the King James says pound. Some of the modern versions use the word mina. A pound or a mina was a part of a talent. And so it was a part or a piece of money. And they were given these things and told to occupy. Well, we don't normally use that word in this sense that is used in the context of this parable. But I want us to talk a little bit about what does it mean to occupy. That's the title of the sermon. At the time of this parable, it was about a week prior to Christ going to the cross. It was about a week prior to His dying for uh, humanity. Of course, the previous three years or three and a half years thereabout uh, brought with it the personal teachings of the disciples, which they enjoyed over that period of time. He had, as He carried out that, uh, accomplished the will of the Father, His life, was fulfilled in that he was doing and did what he had come to do. 
But the, the sad part of it is, and the truth of the matter, his life as it was confined to time and space was about to come to an end. His physical life was about to close. So our chapter begins with Luke telling the reader about this stopover that Jesus made in Jericho as he was making his way to Jerusalem. He stopped in Jericho and as as he was traveling, he encountered a number of interesting people of which we read about. Luke chapter 17, 11 through 18, we read about ten lepers. Of course, we know about the one, right? He's the only one that we have really any information about other than that the other nine were lepers and that they were not thankful. We know about the one. We continue on down through the the chapter, and we learn about a rich young ruler, a young man who was quite wealthy, and we learn about him that he loved his possessions and his money far more than he could have ever loved God. As he continued on, he came across that blind beggar who was not going to give up until he came into contact with the compassion of the Christ, and he made his presence known. We read about a little man named Zacchaeus in chapter 19 who learned what it truly meant to repent. Now, two things occasioned our parable that we noticed in our reading. He was close to Jerusalem. He was getting ready to to go in uh, because the disciples thought that the kingdom was about to be coronated, or he was going to be coronated king of this physical kingdom. And the second was... He was at the end of his physical life, or thereabout, and the people did not understand the nature of the kingdom. So he wanted to talk about this parable for a few moments and deliver to them so they could make a connection. Now here's the thing about a parable, and we're aware of this, but a parable is not a fable, it's not a myth, it's something that could happen in life or something that did happen. When we, when we think about the parable of the sower, as I read that, uh, that parable and the account of Jesus talking about that, in my mind, I, I see a sower in the background sowing seed, and the people would have had, would have had a illustration of that going on if that were the case. And so Jesus would use things that were possible. He never talked about outlandish things that, such as you would see in a fable, a tree talking to another tree or, or something like that. We read some fables like that in the Old Testament. But he would also use things that not only could happen, things that did happen. When we read the parable of the pounds, Christ is going to incorporate a little Jewish history. He's going to use something that they would recognize in their past to help them understand why they were misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom and what would happen if they rejected him as their king in that spiritual kingdom. As Jesus neared Jerusalem, it was the first time that he had approached that city with such a crowd of people. And because he was surrounded by such a multitude of people, automatically they began to think that, well, he's marching into Jerusalem. He's going to take by force the the throne of David. He's going to place himself upon it. And now he is going to rule in the kingdom. And all those expectations and dreams in their minds was about to be fulfilled. They were no doubt excited. And we read about that coming up to it, right? 
He was, he was riding on a donkey into the kingdom. They were throwing down their garments. They were throwing down palm leaves and they were singing Hosanna to the king. They could not wait. They were on the ground level of this new kingdom that was about to take effect. And you recall James and John's mother, they asked the Lord to make her sons to sit on the right hand and to sit on the left hand in His kingdom. They were thinking physical. And so they wanted to be there, and they were so excited because they hated the Roman government. Of course, He is going to use this parable to correct those false ideas. But like often, when we read about Christ interacting with someone, they would often miss the spiritual point, right? They would miss the spiritual point. It would go, as it were, right over their heads. The Nicodemus missed this spiritual teaching of the new birth, didn't he, as recorded in John 3. He asked the question, uh, Master, how can a man enter in again into his mother's womb? Well, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He missed that whole spiritual concept. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she missed the idea of... Uh, the water that Jesus offered. She says, I want some of that water. I don't want to thirst anymore. She was thinking physical, right? Because water was a premium. They would walk miles and miles to get to that well, and she didn't want to have to do that anymore. She didn't want to have to do that. She wanted some of that water that would keep her from ever thirsting again. I don't know. Maybe she wanted to take it back and and give it to her family or the animals or whatever the case may be. And see, now you don't have to go to that water well any longer. It's a physical thing, right? And even the apostles in Acts chapter 1, they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. And you recall as Christ was about to ascend back to heaven, they asked Him, and Lord, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel again? They, even at that point, He had died on the cross, He had come out of the grave, and they're still looking for a physical kingdom. They missed it spiritually. And so they're missing it in this, uh, this context, in this particular period of time, a week prior to the, uh, to the crucifixion, and they still weren't understanding the nature of the kingdom. Now, I want us to look at a little Jewish history here, and Jesus is going to go back and He's going to point to some things that are going to come up and they're going to recognize. When Christ was born, Herod the Great was the king of Judea. And he reigned for about four years past the time Christ was born into this world. And we remember what was was going on. Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, they had exiled themselves down to Egypt because you recall that Herod wanted all the, the young boys, two years and under, to be killed because he had heard about this king of the Jews. He didn't want his throne to be usurped in his mind. Again, he's missing the spiritual context of what's going on, and he's thinking physical. And so he went down to, uh, or Joseph went down into Egypt until Herod died. Now, Herod died, and he had this vast kingdom. And so his kingdom would have naturally fallen to his sons. With the three of them. Well, through the process of time, Herod had uh, murdered untold numbers of uh, people in the kingdom of Judea. Really just a puppet kingdom under the, the throne of Rome. 
Not only had he killed people who he felt threatened by within the Jewish uh, uh, area there, he killed some of his own family members. He killed some of his own sons so they would not challenge him for the throne. And so at the point of death, he changed everything he had done, and so he decided he would leave this kingdom in whole, not to three sons, but to one son. He would leave it to one of the younger sons. That younger son, his name was Archelaus. And so when Jesus began to talk about this parable, about the the rich man who went to a far nation, and he was going to uh, be the ruler. And they sent this delegate of people saying, we don't want him to rule over us. They would remember what had happened when Herod died. They would remember that he had given that kingdom to Archelaus, and they would also recall what happened. They sent a delegation of people to Rome saying, we don't want him to be king over us. So you had the, the anti Archelaus group, and then you had the pro-Archelaus group. And there were people who went and said, yeah, we want him. But there was this great number of people who did not want him to receive the kingdom. And in fact, again, they talked to Augustus Caesar himself. They said, we don't want this man. Of course, Archelaus pleaded to Caesar as these other people pleaded with him not to give him the kingdom, but ultimately he did receive the kingdom, but not all the kingdom. He received the southern portion of Palestine. He got the southern part, and he was given the title of ethnarch. Now he had an older brother, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was given the northern part of Palestine, which is... The reason that Joseph did not return to Bethlehem with his young family. Instead, he went to Nazareth, Matthew 2, 22 through 23. Of course, Archelaus, being his father's son and being uh, a tyrant, did not disappoint. And as we read the parable, as it was spoken, we learn what happened when that man came back. When Archelaus returned, he made good on his reputation of being bloodthirsty, and he slaughtered all of his enemies who had gone to Rome and stood against him. Now, he only, he only reigned over that kingdom for two years. And finally, he was exiled to Spain, and that is where he died. Now, that's the point of the parable. The historical facts would have augmented, and it would have brought to their memory the days of of Christ's infancy and his young life prior to coming back. And that would have been very familiar to those people. So as they're looking or listening at this parable, they're having these these historical facts that are bringing to mind some things that are going to come close to home. You see, these people thought the kingdom of God would immediately appear simply because Christ was going into Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, the place where the temple was. And he obviously was going to take his rightful place, but they were misunderstanding. They were never going to be returned to a period of time when they were world power, and that was just a fleeting moment in their history anyway. Maybe part of Saul's reign, not not so much. A part of David's reign, certainly during the reign of, of Solomon, They were a world force and a world power, but after that they were 
They were in subjection to almost every nation who came along. But you see, it is easy to understand how people who are materialistically minded and they're looking for the for the physical to get caught up in this. After all, think of the things Jesus did. Did Jesus raise people from the dead? Well, if He's our leader and He's our king, we can go to battle. We don't have to worry about casualties. He'll just bring them back from the dead. Did He ever heal someone who had an injury or was born with a problem? The withered hand. If He can restore a withered hand, surely He can restore an arm cut off in battle. What about feeding people? With almost nothing, the 5,000 and the 4,000, we don't have to worry about rations. He'll feed us. We don't have to worry about logistics. How can we be defeated? There's no way Rome can stand against us with Christ as our king. And that's why they were praising him. They wanted that physical king to go in and do for them what they could not do for themselves, and that's defeat Rome. But instead, his kingdom was not going to be established over the course of a few days, was it? No, it wasn't going to happen. In fact, it was going to look like he was defeated. More like the nobleman of the parable, wasn't it? He went into a far country. We didn't know when he was going to return. But when he did return, he made a statement, didn't he? He called his stewards. He brought everybody together and he handed out rewards and punishments. And that's what Archelaus did. They would remember that. Ultimately, they were told they had to occupy till he came. So what does that mean? They're understanding what the parable means. Now it's hitting close to home. They remember the history. Now they needed to occupy. They needed to understand. With that in mind, the parable of the pounds was spoken. And within... As we look at this parable, there was an assignment that was given to these people. The man represents Christ, right? We understand that. The similarities of the historical facts and those things that went on would have been recognized by those in attendance. And like the noblemen, the people sent messages saying they did not want him to be their king. We recall the statements that were were said, only... Only king, the only king we have is Caesar. Crucify him, crucify him. We don't want this man. You remember that when uh, they didn't want to hear about the things that Jesus was talking about? They didn't want to hear about how his kingdom was not physical. Do you remember what he said in John eighteen thirty six? He made a statement saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. See, Pilate was a little worried, wasn't he? Are you trying to, are you trying to start a war with Rome? Are you trying to gather up the multitudes to, to march on Rome? But before the, the man left, after he'd given this assignment, he left them with some money. Okay. Now, the people would have understood money, right? They would have understood that because that was something physical. That was something they were greedy for was money. So the man left. He gave an assignment. And part of that assignment dealt with this money, something they had to occupy while they were gone. Now, what does the pound represent? The pound or the mina, it represents the gospel, the common salvation, the common gospel that is taught through preaching and teaching, 
the presentation of what Christ said, and it teaches one how to obtain salvation. It teaches one how to maintain salvation. Jude understood the nature of the gospel when he when he wrote in his letter, Jude 3, he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you concerning the common salvation, then he had to change his topic, but he understood what that was. The common salvation comes from the, from the common gospel. So they were given this pound. Again, they would recognize money, that something had to be done. And just like the servants of the parable, we're required to occupy our common possession as well. And that brings us to the mission that was given to them. According to Strong, to occupy means to busy oneself with, that is to trade. Again, they understood all about trading money. They understood about loaning money. They understood about receiving uh, uh, interest rates on money that they gave to lenders. And so they knew, I have to do something with this money. So as we get into the parable, we're going to understand that lazy servant was a liar. He knew better than what he was talking about. So they were to do busy themselves with this pound. Now, was the gospel delivered to us to simply wrap in a napkin? Because that's what this lazy servant did. No, the gospel wasn't given to any one person for them to keep it to themselves. The gospel was given to all people so they could deliver it to other people to busy themselves with, to occupy. Now, that's not normally how we use that word, but they were occupying their time and their effort with this mission. That's what he's talking about. How long are we to occupy and maintain the mission? Till the nobleman comes back, right? That was the point. And the nobleman has not returned. Didn't matter then, it doesn't matter now. All that matters is we have a mission. We've been given something to do. And that's what God expects us to do. That's part of the assignment. But they hated the nobleman. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't want to listen to him. And they sent messages, right? You recall again, we don't want this man. We don't want him to be the king. Do you remember what they told Pilate? As Pilate was creating that sign that he hung above the, uh, the head of Christ on the cross, it said, King of the Jews, and they said, Don't write King of the Jews. Write that he said he was the King of the Jews, John nineteen twenty one. Pilate said, I've written what I've written. And we get over into Acts chapter 7, and Stephen makes that wonderful speech, and he reminded them how stubborn and stiff-necked they were, how they had killed the prophets, how they were disobedient to God. Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. And he too was murdered, Stephen was, for occupying the gift that was given to him. But any time there is an assignment, there's always an aftermath, isn't there? There's a reckoning, so to speak. And the master returned, and as he was going to do this reckoning, he kind of did an audit among the people, didn't he? He came and determined what they had done and quizzed them and asked them, and they had to demonstrate They had to show him what they had done while he was gone. Now, there were some faithful servants who did occupy while the man was gone. One of those servants, in addition to his ten pounds, gained ten pounds. Another servant, in addition, gained five pounds. And because of that, he praised them, and he was going to give them a reward over a certain amount of cities because of their faithful work. And then he comes to this one servant. And this one servant 
was uh, someone who was lazy. He didn't want to occupy. He wasn't like the other two in their humility had uh, uh, given credit to the nobleman, just like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. They, weren't, they were like Peter, 2 Peter 1, 2, when he talked about being diligent in your efforts to make your calling and your election sure. So they, were, they credited the nobleman. They were diligent in what they were trying to do. And then you come to this man, the lazy one. He didn't do anything with his pounds. He didn't do anything with the, the gift given to him to occupy. In fact, do you know what he did? He wrapped it in a napkin. And he put it on a shelf. And the custom was at the time, if you wanted to, to place something in a secure location, you would wrap it up and you would dig a hole in the ground. And you would bury it. He didn't even do that. He didn't think enough about what the nobleman had given him to even do that. You know why he said? He said, I didn't do it because you're an austere man. You're an austere man. Now what that meant was you reap where you didn't sow. You're hard to deal with. You're not an honest man. You get and gain your possessions through dishonest Work and oppression of other people. Of course, following an audit, there's always an answer. Based on the answers given or the, the effort produced, there is an answer given. Again, Luke nineteen seventeen. Well done. You've done a great job. I'm going to, to uh, reward you for that. The second servant also was faithful, Luke 19, 19. But notice what he told the lazy servant, beginning with verse 24. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away. That was the punishment. Wait a minute, he's already got ten pounds. Well, you take the one pound from this lazy servant and you give it to the other one. Let's notice that announcement a little closer. That's our third and final point. The Lord reviled the lazy servant. He made him sick. And he disproved his false accusation. He said, you're an austere man, you're an unfair man. You reap where you don't sow. You gain your possessions and your wealth through uh, oppressing other people in dishonest means. The Lord was no, no way unreasonable in His request, was He? What's unreasonable about giving people who are your servants something to do in your absence? They didn't have to come up with anything. He gave them the opportunity. And He was very generous in His rewards, wasn't He? The very fact of accusing the man of being austere, being unforgivable, being dishonest, yet not doing anything demonstrates that the servant knew that wasn't true. If he truly feared the Lord, that he was unreasonable, that he was austere, he would have done something with that pound, wouldn't he? He's simply lazy and didn't want to. And so he was punished. He didn't even give the pound so he could gain interest on it while uh, the Lord was gone. He was lukewarm, he was lazy, and he neglected 
his opportunities. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? The lazy servant did no harm. He did no evil. He simply did nothing. And that's not what God expects. We cannot get to heaven on what we did not do. I heard someone say once, sitting in the pew makes a person a Christian the same way sitting in a garage makes them a car. I guess that's true, right? I guess those of us who are lovers of cars can appreciate that. Like the reviled servant, those listening to Christ were rebellious. So now they're putting it together. Now they're understanding, or at least they should have been understanding. They had the history. He spoke the parable. He had the credentials and the reputation for them to believe what he was saying. But the Jews had continually rebelled against God, hadn't they? That was their history. Again, this man's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want him. We want what we want. We want to be able to go in and, and have an army that can never die, have an army that can never uh, be hungry, have an army that can never be stopped. We want a physical world. It's materialism. You know, when the nobleman returned, he brought righteous judgment on those people who stood against him and sent the delegate. Now, in no way was Jesus comparing that nobleman with Archelaus. He wasn't insinuating that what Archelaus had done was righteous in any way. He was just simply pointing to the facts. When the Lord returns, you think what Archelaus did was bad? Nothing's worse than righteous judgment. If righteous judgment was not worse than unrighteous judgment, the people of the Revelation would not be saved in heaven. They were destroyed unrighteously. But when the God of heaven comes in righteous judgment, and Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when He comes in righteous judgment, you think what Archelaus did was bad? You haven't seen anything yet. That's why the writer would say in Hebrews 10 verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living and a righteous God when He brings punishment upon the unfaithful. At that great day, He will either commend us for occupying, or He will punish us for not. He'll rebuke us. So what does it mean to occupy? To occupy means to busy oneself in the work, in this context of the gospel. Not only outside to people who are not Christians, but internally to self. And when we make mistakes, we need to change that. We need to occupy. That's one of the greatest lessons we can learn. I've had to learn that lesson myself. But before we can occupy, we have to be a servant. We have to obey the gospel. Faith and repentance. Confession, immersion in water, faithful living. Sometimes the nobleman goes off. The servant doesn't behave properly. But he can be forgiven of that if he will repent of those sins, confess them, whether publicly or privately, always confessing them to God, and being placed again in the role of a servant. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation this day, do that as we stand and as we sing.